91.3 FM WVUD and WVUD HD1 Newark in the great state of Delaware. I'm Bill Humphrey, and thanks for listening. The following episode was recorded March 13th, 2017, and produced by me at my studio in Newton, Massachusetts. This week, Rachel and Jonathan joined me to discuss federal funding for infectious disease prevention, why Democrats are very bad at taking credit for achievements, and my experience signing up for health insurance on the exchange. All that is coming up just ahead. Arsenal for Democracy is available for download on Wednesdays at arsenalfordemocracy.com and from iTunes. We air the show in Delaware on 91.3 FM and stream it from wvud.org on Wednesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern. Follow us on Twitter at AFD Radio or like us on Facebook. It's Arsenal for Democracy. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me again in studio this week is Jonathan Cohn. Hey, Jonathan. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me on. And on the line again from Boise is Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. Uh, So we're going to be talking this week about, uh, first off, about uh, the Centers for Disease Control and uh, other related issues, um, which have come under fire from certain Republicans. Uh, And this is a topic that is near and dear to your heart, Rachel. Uh, So, you know, I I know there's been a a lot of... uh, you know, published op-eds and things going back and forth on this. I was wondering if you could explain what the situation is and why this has come up suddenly in the news. Okay, so uh, not many people know about uh, the public health aspect of the ACA, but um, there is a chunk of funding that goes to the pu- Prevention and Public Health Fund, um, which comprises about 12% of CDC's annual budget. And um, what they what that fund does is it it helps um, states, it, it provides block grants to states and localities to help run their public health programs. And it's all aspects of public health. So um, vaccine um, funding, uh, smoking cessation funding, uh, lead testing in water systems, or even uh, human lead testing levels in blood. Um, and also, um, not just these acute conditions, but also like chronic conditions. So diabetes uh, treatment um, and prevention, um, stroke prevention, heart disease prevention. Um, a lot of these huge killers um, in America that that cost a lot of money to uh, combat. Um, so if if the ACA is repealed and the American Health Care Act um, is enacted, uh, there is no mechanism for funding that uh, public health fund. And so a lot of these block grants for the states would just go away with no replacement. And um, because there's huge discrepancies in between the states in, on how they fund 
their public health programs, a lot of states would be left in the lurch if this funding went away all of a sudden with no replacement. Who is bent on removing this funding and why? Um, well, the Republicans. It's seen as kind of a slush fund that the CDC is just spending this money willy-nilly. Um, but the thing about public health is it's it's hard to prove a negative. So when you see diabetes rates go down, it's hard to pin that to public health and say, this is a success. Or if there's not a food outbreak, it's hard to say, hey, this food outbreak didn't happen. That's a success in public health. So it's, it's hard to see the effects of successful public health um, programs. So it's, it, um, it's hard to prove our worth um, when it's kind of a long-term invisible outcomes, health outcomes. So um, I think it, it can be seen that we're just throwing money at problems and there's no results, but they really, there really are results. We just, they're just not super apparent. They're not big news headlines. It seems to me like there's a consistent problem here, uh, as in other areas uh, of public policy, where the Republicans mm-hmm. try to treat everything like a corporate business model, mm-hmm. and you know that that you should be able to show quarterly deliverables and targets right. and synergy yeah. and all that stuff, and like yeah. it doesn't necessarily translate well to that world. Uh, what has been sort of the quasi-official response from? the you know leadership at these organizations that are coming under fire from the republicans there's been several opinion pieces uh i think thomas frieden the outgoing cdc director has uh given several interviews where he's been trying to emphasize how important public health funding is um i i found a washington post article entitled Obamacare Repeal Guts Crucial Public Health Funds. And they kind of talked to Thomas Frieden and he said, if this funding is lost, Americans will be at greater risk from vaccine preventable disease, foodborne infections and deadly infections contracted in hospitals. And so that's more of the clinical side of public health funding, which is where um, my interests and my career lies. So Uh, something that's very obvious and has been in the news quite a bit lately is there's been a rise in mumps outbreaks. Also, uh, antimicrobial resistance um, in pathogens. So we've all heard of C. diff. We've heard of MRSA. Um, So we're trying to put funding mechanisms in place that would help track and help prevent these um, these, uh, resistant pathogens and keep them from spreading. And a lot of that funding comes directly from grants from the CDC. So if that funding went away, we would just be crippled immediately. Well, it seems like a bold strategy from Republicans against vaccines will be a great way to win back Orange County next time after <laughs> that disappointing uh, loss to Hillary Clinton uh, with all that uh, ad expenditures in Southern California. And then everyone can take their you know, their uh, measles kids to uh, Disneyland without any objection by the nanny <laughs> state. Um, Jonathan, uh, on a more serious note, uh, what, what were your thoughts or questions? on? Yeah, this? I was just going to kind of w- Rachel. One thing I thought one point that you were making that I thought was really important was just just the fact that the, the Affordable Care Act wasn't just about the insurance industry. That I think, particularly, it's it's part of one of my grievances with the use of the term Obamacare, is it makes it sound as though it is 
an insurance program. Mm -hmm. And that's one, like, and specifically just using that to equate it particularly with the exchange. And, but there is a whole, there are many things beyond that. That's why the bill was so long for one, Mm -hmm. but it did a lot in terms of various types of public health prevention, just even how payments work, how hospital, like how hospitals work and how it was kind of basically like an omnibus health, health bill. The kind of the th- the one provision that always comes to mind. I think I've mentioned it on a past episode. When I think about what all of the the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act did, that wasn't just about uh, health insurance. Was the provisions about requiring restaurant, like kind of restaurant chains, to make their uh, calorie nutrition information publicly available in some like at least somewhat prominent way, because at the time it was very active, kind of actively following kind of food following food politics and that was a big thing but if you were to like i doubt most people had any had any idea that it was that even had anything to do with the affordable care act i think that partly speaks to democrats being terrible on messaging any of these things yeah Mm -hmm. yeah no and i i think the other one that i usually bring up which i've brought up many times on the show before is is that bernie sanders got the amendment included Mm -hmm. that provided some funding for community health centers. Yeah. That was hugely important in a lot of rural areas in this country. Um, You know, that's probably where a lot of those people are getting their treatment that we keep getting these kind of snide articles about, Mm -hmm. you know, Trump voters in Trump country or whatever, who, you know, in all likelihood, a lot of them probably didn't even vote vote. anyway. Like, but, you know, supposedly, you know, alleged Trump voters getting their, you know, potentially their, their access to healthcare taken away. I think that's a whole separate, very annoying uh, issue in how the media covers that. But, and one thing as well, thinking about the community health centers, is that you only ever really heard Democrats talking about them when it was like, oh, look, this Republican is celebrating a community health center. That's because of the Affordable Care Act, but never really championing it of their own. Yeah. So it was, it was just like, a, oh, hypocrisy much, like Mr. <laughs> Republican colleague, rather than this is because of us. See this building? This is us. Yeah. This is what happens when you vote for us. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, that's, I mean, that's the problem. They Everything ends up being about hypocrisy. Yeah. They don't do any of this stuff with, you know, saying we did this. Uh, and I, 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 I wonder if maybe part of it was that they got a lot of backlash for putting the, uh, at all the stimulus sites, like along the highways everywhere in the country in 2009, 2010, they were putting up those signs that said brought to you by the American Reinvestment and Recovery Act or whatever. Mm. They should have just put a sign that said, this is the stimulus. Thanks, Obama. (laughs) You know, yeah, it's it's, they don't want to own any of these things. And it's 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 like an insane understanding of politics where you like try to disavow anything good that you've done. That like how amazing would it have been if all across the country there were these like signs on roads that just said, thanks, Obama, exclamation. <laughs> I, I think like part of the problem, of course, is always that you've got this click of these D.C. Democrats and wonks and whatever who think that giving out resources is bad and shameful. Mm-hmm. not just like the welfare state these are the people who think that pork barrel spending is the enemy of the republic and is what was yeah. you know creating the mm-hmm. budget deficit and stuff like that they completely buy into this propaganda uh this you know rachel used the term slush fund yeah right that that's that's the republican propaganda line i mean it's absurd to think that people at the cdc are like taking federal dollars to get massages instead yeah. of like 
you know, solving health crises. And it's more of a Pentagon thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and no, so you get the, you get these, these Democrats who, you know, often not elected Democrats, but just the people around them and the mm-hmm. people who come up with the stuff or the messaging people, especially the messaging people, I think are drawn disproportionately from these circles uh, where you're just like embarrassed to take credit for any actual expenditures and investments in the communities or or they'll come up with some banal line about how, you know, this is above party lines and we're I, investing in our country mm-hmm. and this is in the national interest, whatever the heck that, that means, is. you know. Well, well, yeah. your, your point actually reminds me of one thing that I don't know if you both of you following Matt Stoller, who is now at New America, was commenting earlier today about he was kind of pushing back about something that was celebrate talking about how democrats love governing for the let's say and doing good and doing big things for, for for the public he noted that in contrast there are a lot of democratic elect democratic let's say elites or officials who just who don't seem to view public power as inherently legitimate as opposed to and viewing private concentrations of power as fundamentally more legitimate so as where if you're a republican and if you view private concentrations of power as the legitimate sources of power. That's exactly how you always see Republicans legislate. They, yeah. that, there's really no difference there. Whereas with Democrats, you'll get, get this view of like, well, they're doing bad things, but there's really nothing we can do about it. Yeah, no, they don't want to. I mean, it's it's new labor, new Democratic type BS where the, yeah. you don't want to take on anything in any significant way. Uh, and, and, you know, we've talked about it before, how they don't attack the power centers that like yeah. prop up the Republicans. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, they don't recognize politics as a means of controlling and distributing resources, or they yeah. see that as some sort of shameful throwback. And it's like, no, all of politics, politics is, is about that. power. All of mm-hmm. power is about distribution of resources. And this is objectively good for the country, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't take credit for it because the other side certainly isn't doing yeah. anything close to that. And, you know, they should be defending funding for the CDC mm-hmm. and things like that. That's an obvious no-brainer. And the fact that Republicans want to take it away, why are you not attacking them viciously on that instead of going on about Russia or talking about hypocrisy or whatever? Is It's very frustrating to watch it happen, you know, time and again. And it's like, no, take credit for these things. They're super duper popular. No one was like, oh, I'm going to vote Republican because I like the new deal. They ended up voting for the Democrats for president five times in a row. Mm-hmm. You have to actually take credit for what you're going to do because the the Republicans take credit for the most absurd things under the sun. I mean, there was yeah. somebody did a side-by-side comparison of one of the top uh, House Republicans press release a year ago for the jobs report for a given month Mm -hmm. versus the jobs report for the same month this year. And, you know, it was almost the exact same change in terms of how many jobs created, what was the percentage change in unemployment. And the difference was one of them was under Obama and one of them was under Trump. So he used this language saying like, you know, this shows that the economy still isn't recovering and blah, 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 and that Obama's bad versus now where, you know, clearly Donald Trump is already making America great again or whatever, you know, the language was. I didn't look too closely at it, but... Mm -hmm. I saw that people were doing this side-by-side comparison, and you can imagine from there. And it's just that that's what Republicans do. And 
the argument when I'm sure whoever was doing the side by sides probably made more of a hypocrisy argument, or at least people who are sharing that probably did, right? And it's like, well, hypocrisy is not really the way to go there. That's a Republican who's better at politics than you are. And, you know, I, I know that there's a tendency, I think, especially among Democrats to look for some capital T truth and to say that there is, you know, this whole thing about a post fact, post reality, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, but at a certain level, some of it is that's just how politics works. And you have to contest it at a level of ferocity that they're coming at you with, or you'll get just blown away. And you can lament the loss of whatever imagined past comedy you may have had, but usually that hinged upon shared love of segregation and stuff like that. The good time, happy feelings or whatever was always restricted to a certain segment of the ideological spectrum that basically had it in common with each other. So one thing on the point that we were just talking about, I think a great an article that I would definitely recommend is by Jack uh, Maserve, I hope I pronounced the last name correctly, called Keep It Simple and Take Credit uh, in Democracy Journal, which the title kind of says the main point, but like it makes sense. The other point I was going to make, given what you were talking before about this age of the kind of myth, kind of this discussion of this time of yore where there was bipartisan comedy, etc., it reminds me of one thing that I think is often a problem is when people imagine a, this like golden age of the Democratic Party, that the Democratic Party has always been problematic. It did some good things back in the day. It was still problematic. Yep. The goal should be, how can we take take upon the legacy of the good things mm-hmm. and get rid of the, get and without the bad things there, not imagine that like the party w- didn't have a whole bunch of Southern yeah. se- segregationists. I mean, this, this radio show that you're listening to is named after an FDR speech. <laughs> FDR, <laughs> FDR, yeah. Did all the New Deal stuff and was generally very good on a lot of things and really moved the country yeah. forward. He also interned the Japanese. Japanese. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's bad. That's exactly. super objectively bad. Yeah. It's always going to be complicated. Um, obviously, I draw the line at certain points. Like, I'm, you know, there are still a lot of Democrats who are very into like Andrew Jackson. Yeah, which, which and is- I'm just like, no. Because no. Andrew Jackson was insane, <laughs> had bad policy, and owned a ton of slaves. Yeah, it's one thing that I just found really annoying. So I was reading a rev- it, I think I know I had seen this before, but I was reading a review of Thomas Frank's Listen Liberal. And he's like, oh, the Democratic Party was founded in this like anti-establishment populism with Andrew Jackson. So I was like, Andrew Jackson was terrible. And one of the only good the one of the only forms of good bipartisanship in this country should be when Republicans and Democrats can agree that Andrew Jackson was terrible. Democrats can agree he's terrible because he was a genocidal racist. Republicans because he founded the Democratic Party. <laughs> yeah, it's not great. And uh, yeah, no. And, and the other thing, too, that that's always astonishing about those is that whenever these people who who really like to look back at a golden age that didn't exist, they always end up landing on some like really terrible president and just like saying, oh, he was so good, really, you know, worked across the aisle or whatever. And it always, and it, you know, obviously Andrew Jackson didn't particularly work across the aisle. <laughs> he didn't even work with his own party most of the time, but uh, you know, they, they'll just, they'll come up with these bizarre theories and then you just be like, have you looked at his policy record? Even if you take out the slavery and the genocide of the Cherokee, which you shouldn't take out, yeah. but even if you take that out, 
he was very incompetent on policy. What what exactly are you celebrating? Anyway, that's a bit of a detour. But yeah, there's there's a certain extent of needing to figure out how to take credit for stuff and also distance yourself from the bad things, but take exactly. credit for the stuff that you actually got right. Exactly. Although, you know, by contrast, I think there's also a tendency in the Democratic Party, especially in the last few years, to really dramatically overstate the things you did get done. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. And I mean, that's that's been a problem. I think I mentioned previously on the show about somebody getting into just like yelling in my face about how pre- fake like news premiums. Yeah. Fake news. Cause I said that premiums didn't go down, which is true on average. They didn't go down. And he was like, no, on average premiums went down. I was like, that's just not true. That's objectively untrue. It saddens me that Russia has been misinforming you. As such. Well. I know <laughs> it's terrible. Anyway. Yeah. There's there. I am a little frustrated with, I don't know. It's it's obviously a balancing act. On on the one hand, they're not taking credit for the actually good stuff, and on the other hand, they're taking yeah. way too much credit and pride in things that aren't actually that good. Mm-hmm. Rachel. Well, uh, just to go back to taking credit, uh, I think uh, one or two years ago there was a huge paper about how um, foodborne outbreak tracking saved us like three hundred million dollars a year in lost pr- productivity and. Um, uh, preventing illness and the costs associated with that with hospital stays. And I, the only people I really saw sharing that were like public health people. Like if we, if a democratic politician had just grabbed that paper and said, this is what we're doing. This is the success Mm -hmm. of the, of the ACA. I think that would go a long way to, to highlighting how important this public health funding is. But it, it seems like the, only the wonks, the, the public health funding, wonks and science geeks seem to really latch on to the successes of the of the public health side of the ACA and you don't really hear about it anywhere else like i've i i've only really heard like read blog posts from CDC officials or APHL officials the association of public health laboratories they're trying to help PR and um help to highlight what we do as a group because I think it is so hidden most of the time. I Before I started working at the public health laboratory in Idaho, I didn't even know it existed. And that's actually a fairly common sentiment among my coworkers. So we have a really big PR p- problem in public health and we need to learn how to overcome that and how to uh, get politicians to highlight what we do and how important it is. Well, that... That also goes to another issue, which is not just limited to public health, but the scientific community in general, which does receive a lot of public mm-hmm. dollars, uh, mm-hmm. is a, a, a deep reluctance to get involved in politics and promote mm-hmm. the work and that it's seen as some sort of like shameful self-promotion or risking politicizing it or mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, I don't know. Like if you, you know, yeah, in an ideal world, you have both or all parties in your country are pro-public health, pro-vaccine, pro-food and drug regulation, like stuff like that. And, you know, under, you know, accept the science of global warming and all these good things, right? And then, yeah, you wouldn't want to be showing party preference because mm-hmm. neither part. But if you're in a country yeah. where one of the parties is blatantly opposing a lot of that stuff, it is vital to your mission 
to be able mm-hmm. to get one of those parties elected on a pro-science platform. It's also vital to your ability to do your job. And, mm-hmm. and you know, then the concern becomes, okay, well, what if the Republicans take power and then defund me anyway? Well, I'm sorry to break okay. it to you all, but they're going to do happening. that anyway, you know? <laughs> and uh, so, you know, the, this, this reluctance to get involved is another issue of like not recognizing power and the association it has with distribution of resources and, and jobs. And you can say, well, you know, like, I don't think anyone would would think of it as like a patronage job to say that like, mm-hmm. oh, Rachel in Idaho is getting money ultimately from the state and federal government that's public dollars, you know, and that's where her job comes from. So she's just, you know, a political patronage job. Like, I don't <laughs> think anyone would say that, but like a lot of Republicans are thinking it, even if they're not mm-hmm. saying it. Uh, and they don't they don't see the value in it. And just saying like, hey, how come you don't see the value in this isn't going to work and saying, hey, you're a hypocrite isn't going to work, you know, and saying, oh, we, you know, they 300 million in savings that basically accrue to the private sector. You know, mm-hmm. you have to you can't just throw that out there and then like think it's going to go on its own. And I saw there was some article recently. I don't even remember where that people are getting upset about that was like, you know, what scientists need to do to, you know, get things back on track or whatever. And like one of the recommendations of this article was like, don't get political. And it was just like, no, that ship sailed. Like we have a, we have a party that's actively bent on destroying and smashing the scientific community. They hate science. They're very open about their hatred of science. Most of them just like hate the government and want to slash funding for everything, you know, but, but you have to show what you're working on in order to, to avoid that. Jonathan, it's not that they hate, it's not that they hate all of the government. They hate certain parts of the government. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing I think it's always important to emphasize that the question is government for whom I guess, but like, you know, think about the, you know, across the board cuts. That doesn't happen that often, but they have done actual across-the-board cuts that affect and, everything. And they've tried every single time to get the Pentagon out of it. No, they have. I know, but I'm saying so like... So that's, that, 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 that's my main point. Though. Yeah. It's like that they love military spending. They like spending on prisons, cops, and cops and big weapons. Sure, <laughs> sure. But like spending that helps the poor people, why? We can't have that. Uh, or just... Everyone, Everyone in general <laughs> in the case of preventing E. coli because, outbreaks or whatever. Yeah. Because if we spend money to help everyone, then the pores will get some of that money too. Yeah. We just can't have that. Oh, I'm sorry. Were you making the Republican argument or were you making the, the Democratic, Democratic Party <laughs> argument? Means tested public Means like Yeah, well it's really important that we not pay for the rich kids college using the rich people's <laughs> tax <laughs> dollars that they won't use at public college anyway because they'll go to harvard like we need some we need some tax exempt public health savings accounts wait have you (laughs) hang on have you there are there is actually i think the health savings account proposal if i remember correctly in that new republican plan Mm -hmm. right but then those are like yeah kind of health insurance that's it yeah so that's a health savings thing but um apparently like american enterprise institute aei which is a conservative think tank is actually now pushing public school savings accounts for like k through 12 and yeah and i don't know it's it's sort of interesting because one of the unions one of the teachers unions in i forget iowa or somewhere like that i know there's some cuts going on there but there was i forget it was one of the midwestern states uh, the teachers union was like, how ridiculous would it be if they were, a- if, if, you know, these Republicans were advocating for public sa- public school savings accounts. And then like a week later, AEI drops, like <laughs> the cutting edge of sc- the future of school choice, school savings accounts. And it's just like, that doesn't make any sense. 
it's supposed to be public for a reason. I don't know. Yeah, there's going to be E. coli savings accounts next that are like, <laughs> I'm going like, to, yeah. How can you be like, we if can't you don't, protect yeah. everyone from this disease. Right. And we're not going to, you know, that money, instead of paying Rachel, right, that money's just going to go to cover the doctor costs or whatever at the hospital when you're inevitably hospitalized <laughs> because there's no public health prevention. Uh, all right. Arsenal for Democracy is going to go to a break from WVUD and ArsenalForDemocracy.com. We'll be right back in just a moment. You're still listening to Arsenal for Democracy. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Still in studio with me is Jonathan, and on the line from Idaho is Rachel. Uh, so we've been talking this hour so far about, you know, the CDC funding issues with the Republican uh, health proposal. Uh, we've been talking about the issue of uh, power and resources and taking credit uh, or misascribing credit in some cases. And I actually I did want to talk a little bit about that. Uh, I've been going through the process of uh, signing up for health insurance on the individual exchange um, and so I want, I did want to talk a little bit about that cause I'm in Massachusetts and the system is quite different in Massachusetts, I think, than a lot of other States, particularly because of the reforms that predate yeah. the affordable care act. Um, obviously they had to like bring some stuff into compliance with mm-hmm. the national law, but a lot of it, you know, comes, comes from Massachusetts. Um, now if I remember correctly, Rachel, you, you have health insurance provided through your work, right? Yep. And yeah, is I that do. the case for you as well, Jonathan? Yes. Yeah, so I do not, and so I've been, uh, you know, looking at the exchange stuff, and I assumed that it was going to be much worse than than it actually turned out to be. So I will give that credit. Uh, but there's How a lower your expectations. It was I had bad expectations. <laughs> um, but I will say that there's a limit to how much credit I'm willing to actually give this system, particularly given that it's been several years since the healthcare.gov debacle at the federal level mm-hmm. uh, with the web design issues. Uh, and, and then, you know, presumably there was technology, should have been technology in place predating that as well uh, for Massachusetts. But, you know, just for a, as a point of comparison, health insurance is quite expensive in the Boston area if you're paying like full price, real, real market, et cetera, stuff. Um, you know, the Cobra, which is where you would basically get to keep your old insurance, but pay full price. That would have been around $500 a month premium or something, just as a point of comparison. Uh, and a lot of people would certainly pay a lot more. Now, that's not like adjusted for my you know, age and health level or anything like that. But uh, I did, you know, go through the whole process and it didn't take that long to apply, but it was kind of confusing. There's a lot of forms like having to, you know, what is your income going to be? Not like estimate your income or like what was your income last year, but what is your income going to be? Well, I don't know. I mean, it could change. I, you know, if you're working as kind of an individual contractor, that tends to happen. Um, the interesting part, though, and this is not really related to the Affordable Care Act, except in the sense of that federal subsidies were increased. So Medicaid had already been expanded in Massachusetts as like part of a pilot program, which ended up being the Medicaid expansion that happened in most of the rest of the country, although like not Idaho. So, you know, I'm above the Medicaid eligibility, but there was already that in place. And then in Massachusetts, they basically have like a a middle tier before you get really like market competition, free choice, whatever thing that was promised. 
you know, that's a higher income level that I do not qualify for. It's not that high, but it is significantly higher than my, you know, approximate annual income. And that, like, I assume, because you could look at, like, preview stuff, there's some adjustment for, like, your age and health, but it is a lot more expensive. There's, like, more in the way of deductibles, more in the way of premiums, that kind of thing. And that's, like, a connector choice or something is what it's called, really leaning into that choice concept. I ended up with the connector care based on my income, and that they basically use the same limited number of companies that are uh, essentially the Medicaid administrators more or less like mm-hmm. that you know that that implement medicaid on the ground and, and handle the payments and all that kind of thing so it's a very limited number of companies so i wasn't really feeling the market competition angle there particularly the other thing and this is this is good from the point of view of massachusetts but again i don't think that it's necessarily true in most of the rest of the country uh, obviously there's some regulations from the federal government on like what has to be in a plan mm-hmm. That certainly is the case in Massachusetts. Uh, But the other thing is that Massachusetts has this regulated middle thing called connector care between the Medicaid expansion line and between the choice level. And that still limited number of providers, but they're zero deductible plans, which I was not expecting. So that was nice to find. And also just highly regulated in general, such that there is a pretty limited bandwidth of like the range of monthly premiums and that's fine with me so i i ended up you know picking something that oh and the other thing that's this is very strange in my mind but um you can get a state subsidy which is not the same thing i think as the federal one Hmm. because that would be for more of like the choice level at the higher income i'm pretty sure but this there's a state subsidy and i don't know if that would go away if the affordable care act were to be repealed because i'm guessing the funding partly comes from the federal government Uh, Or at least they would have some state shortfalls that they have to move around. But anyway, you could take up to a $64 a month credit from the state, uh, or you could apply it at the end. I chose to apply it at the end because I don't know how my income Mm -hmm. is going to be, and I don't want to have to pay that back because there is a clawback provision. So potentially, you know, I could get up to like 700 and something dollars back at the end, you know, at the next Mm -hmm. tax time. It probably won't be that high, though. So I ended up getting a zero deductible plan for $160, which is quite good. And it could have been even less if I had taken the credit, right? It could have been more like $75. Here are some of the problems though with this. So, you know, limited networks, not every place takes it. I had to like find a new doctor and all that other stuff and find new specialists for everything. Um, I managed to find that ended up going with the, the, uh, company that has the hospital that I was born at. Turns out they still had my record from when I was born. (laughs) I've never been back since. They had my name, date of birth, my home address, my home phone number, which hasn't changed. Um, So that was interesting. Um, So that was fine, but it was a little bit of a tedious process because all of these different like insurers all have their own websites for like looking up, you know, what doctors you can go to and everything. Uh, The other thing too is that that absurdly low price and lack of deductibles that I have cited, again, is partly a state regulation thing, kind of like Mm -hmm. the German health system. It's also a massively subsidized situation. Mm -hmm. That presents quite a lot of problems. We know we have a funding shortfall. We've talked about that a lot on the show, uh, a funding shortfall in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And I looked, I finally found an article 
that was published in, uh, I think, 2009, er, relatively early 2009. The publication was the Commonwealth Fund, and this was the May 2009 issue brief, the Massachusetts Commonwealth Health Insurance Connector Structure and Functions. So this was pre-ACA explaining the system. But the interesting thing was they were quoting like the 2008 prices for all these things. All of this stuff basically predates structurally the Affordable Care Act in Massachusetts. Does not That's not the case in other states, obviously, mm -hmm. but it does in Massachusetts. The subsidized plans, essentially, like the cost of that, has not changed. It's like a $1 or $2 difference, basically. Mm -hmm. That requires an immense amount of subsidization. Yeah. And that is troubling because that means that that money has to come from somewhere. And Massachusetts is terrible about budgeting and coming up with revenues because they don't want to raise taxes and they don't want to tax the wealthy. And we don't have a progressive income tax. So that's obviously a bit of a problem. And again, I don't know what would happen if there were a federal repeal. Anyway, I, I thought that I should like loop people in on kind of what this process was, because I don't think there's a lot of people, you know, either in politics or, you know, with radio shows or whatever who are on the exchange and can talk about it firsthand. Uh, Massachusetts is obviously probably one of the better systems in the country. Um, but I did allude to earlier the uh, website issues that had happened with the federal level back in 2013 mm -hmm. around the time of the government shutdown. Um very frustrating to me because we could have had Democrats winning gigantic majorities back had they not erased the gains of the polling from the Republican shutdown debacle. Mm -hmm. The website is very bad. It's astonishingly bad. In addition to all the forms and hassle, which is probably pretty standard for insurance stuff, it crashed repeatedly, like all the time. And you had to figure out, okay, did I submit that thing? Is it going to resubmit? What's the problem here? Here's the worst part, which I have not, and maybe I misunderstood something, but I looked around for like a day trying to figure this out. There was a part where I got, I was like, okay, I finally have figured out which plan I can get to which doctors, blah, blah, blah. I've picked my plan, selected it, go to checkout. Uh, would you like to select a dental plan? No, I wouldn't. Okay, well, you have to select a dental plan. No, I don't. There, it's not required. There's no regulation from the federal level. There's no regulation from the state level. There's no mandate law. Uh, the dental insurance is not good, uh, especially at that tier. It's, you know, it's not that expensive, but it also doesn't really cover anything. Like you would end up paying more for the insurance than, you know, any, you know, normal cleanings and stuff out of pocket. I had to call a hotline number, which fortunately was like a three minute wait time or something only because I was enrolling in the special enrollment period rather than in the open enrollment period, which is like, you know, ends in January or whatever. If everyone else were calling, that would have probably meant like waiting for a really long time, I'm sure, to get mm -hmm. through to someone. And you had to like figure out which number to dial within that because there's all these different like assistants and whatever. And, uh, I, and I finally got through to a live person. I said, hey, do I actually need to get a dental plan here? Because it's not letting me check out without selecting one. And she says, oh, no. I was like, okay, so what happens now? Oh, I'll just check out your health insurance plan for you i was like so they they've they've set it up so that you you think you have to buy dental insurance but there's no law or regulation for that and i don't even think there's like a provision saying they encourage that to happen so i don't know what the deal is with that but it's not good i wonder if some lobbyist came up with that or if it's just terrible site design uh, and then there were things like, oh, when you finally get checked out now you have to wait four hours before you can make your first payment it's like what 
you know, so yeah, on the one hand, I'm very happy that I will have what appears to be a fairly reasonable plan with reasonable co-pays that's very tightly regulated by the state, you know, relatively low health insurance premiums, uh, no deductibles is going to be very nice. So that's good. That's the good news. Uh, the bad news is that this is like such a horrible, tedious process and there's no like centralization uh, of any of this stuff and like you know trying to search for doctors like i said all the different insurance companies have a different like search engine and everything and the whole setup is different and it's just it's it's really terrible and and it speaks to that issue which i think you might have some comments on of this this whole notion of choice to begin mm-hmm. with is just such a facade because it's not like buying most things mm-hmm. there's such a lack of transparency and it's so opaque and you have to like figure out like which doctors are going to even take your mm-hmm. stuff who who is really accepting new patients and that kind of thing and do they accept the and and the, this is the other thing too again it's the providers that provide the medicaid plans or administrate the medicaid plans mm-hmm. in massachusetts so it's kind of a bad thing that a lot of doctors don't take that this was my first time going through this the individual exchange process and everything and and having to figure this out myself not just having insurance thrown at mm-hmm. me or whatever you know, and that I don't have any choice in it. And honestly, the choice aspect was not great. I And I, it wasn't even that much of a choice because of how tightly regulated it was. And I also kept thinking, because, you know, abstractly, we've talked before on the show about, yeah. like, should the U.S. potentially go to a German-style system, which would be probably the least disruptive to the existing system, which it has its own clear bad sides, but would at least be politically less of a firestorm than going to a fully, you know, NHS-style <laughs> single-payer or something. My thought while doing this was like, okay, but if you're tightly regulating it to that extent, and let's say you made them nonprofit insurance mm-hmm. plans or whatever, why not just have one thing? Yeah. And I honestly don't know like that much about the German system other than the top, you know, the headlines about it, right? Yeah. I don't know how it actually works on the ground, but it's like, why? Why would you need to have multiple companies in general so i don't know your yeah, thoughts like on if this they're, if they're offering the same exact product what is the value of competition because they're not it's if the only thing that competition can achieve for you is selling the same exact product all things the same at a lower price the market really isn't doing anything it should in most of those in such cases it should be state right just be state run yeah and you've achieved economies of scale the thing that particularly bothered me was that Within that tier, all of the plans have to be the same in terms yeah. of what, you know, that there's no deductibles and the copays all have to be identical too, I think. So I don't know what the distinction is. And yet there was a price range of, let's say, including the $64 mm-hmm. subsidy. There was there was a price range of, I want to say, 73 or $4 a month up to 200 and something or, or pretty close to 200 Well, why? Yeah. What's the, what's the distinction? So your choice is you would get to a different network of doctors potentially. And that's the only distinction that you're paying for, but you have no like clear way of checking that. And some of them were not, I mean, some of them are like very Boston specific networks and they don't really cover stuff in the rest of the state. I don't know how it would be out in, you know, Western mass or something like that. At least two of those plans would have been probably entirely irrelevant. Hmm. Um, And, and I just, the whole thing was, I mean, there was an element of confirmation bias, but a lot of it really did kind of confirm a lot of things that yeah. I already thought about the system. And I was just like, what? We it would make way more sense to have a single payer thing. And that's the yeah. other thing, too, is that there's a lot of progressives who, whether or not they like single payer, were like really fixated on that public option 
Mm-hmm. And I just don't know that that would have made that much of a difference. I think it would have just looked like another plan. Yeah, that you and would... I don't think you would know. I mean, like we talked about in the first segment, mm-hmm. guarantee you the Democrats wouldn't be taking credit yeah, for that. For it. Mm-hmm. it wouldn't be like Democare or whatever. It would just be Medi Feel Good or whatever. Like it would just be named some really th- weird yeah. thing and it would vary in each state and you would have no idea what, what you were getting or what the significance of it was. And you wouldn't realize that was a government plan. And I don't think it would have accomplished the goals that everyone was thinking. Like there were all these people who were like, oh, everyone will see that the government can do it better. The other thing too is I, I guarantee you they would have outsourced it. Yeah, they, yeah, they wouldn't have set up a state, you know, agency to run, you know, you know the, the, the public option. Yeah, they would have contracted it out to these exact same companies that are already contracted out to do the Medicaid, which I didn't realize. That's yeah. a new discovery on my mm-hmm. part. I feel ignorant for not having known that. But honestly, yeah, I've never been anywhere close to the Medicaid mm-hmm. eligibility line. So anyway, and, and I don't know. There's, there's like definitely some really good aspects here. But honestly, all of the really good aspects are basically the parts where there's the heaviest government intervention. Mm-hmm. And at that point, why do you not just go the go full ahead. distance? Yeah, because kind of going off the point that we were noting before, the, I think I've noted on the show before, but the way I always think about with with the concept of choice is that for choice to have any real value, there needs to be a lot of qualitative diversity at every price level. And so that's like before, like you had, uh, was, it like, was it Jason Chaffetz who was comparing health insurance and an iPhone. And he wasn't necessarily comparing them. Like, and it just made me think of why they're such different goods. Because if you wanted to buy a mobile, if you want to buy a, a smartphone, there are different brands that do genuinely offer you different functionalities. They're not the same. I have, I have a Droid. Others have, have an iPhone. Their, their designs are different. Their apps are different. There are various other things in which they differ that are not just a function function of like a, a quantitative measure it's not just this phone is faster this phone is slower it's there are actual design thing you and you might also want to pay for it want to choose a blue phone or a pink phone or a white phone and so those are qualitative different a, a big phone a small phone a, a, a fat one a skinny one maybe you can get them in different shapes so that so there are differences in what you're choosing so that the what you end up choosing can be a function of individual self like individual self-expression, preference, taste, etc. When it comes to something like health insurance, whether you get Blue Cross or whether you get Aetna is not a form of individual self-expression <laughs> or a way of channeling your own prefer like your own preferences of your ta- my taste in health insurance. Nobody thinks about it like that. Uh, Rachel, I wanted to get your thoughts to close out the segment uh, and the episode. Um, wh- what are your reactions to, to hearing my sort of narrative on this? Uh, I don't know if you know anyone maybe in, in Idaho who has insurance through the exchange there. Um, I know my sister, Sarah, who has also been a guest on the show. Um, I know she for a while had to uh, purchase her plan through the exchange. And um, I think she struggled a lot with the same issues you did. Um, the network issue, finding providers that would accept it. And um, unfo- unfortunately, those the subsidies that you uh, got to enjoy, uh, just uh, we didn't um, accept the Medicaid. She fell into the donut hole where she was making too much, um, but she didn't qualify for the subsidies. Um, so she had to pay an exorbitant amount for very little care. And um, so I it's coming from a very different place from Massachusetts where there was that infrastructure in place prior to the ACA uh, mandates. Um, so, and 
I have a, a silly thought, but most of my uh, state uh, websites are made to run on um, Internet Explorer. And so I'm just wondering if there were um, uh, browser compatibility issues. That's just kind of an idle thought I had. Our Idaho.gov websites aren't the most user friendly. So <laughs> I, I'm, I'm wondering how, how bad that struggle was um, to sign up. It sounds like you had similar issues with that. It's so overly complicated for no reason. And even though I ended up with like a good plan or whatever, or we hope it is, I guess I'll find out soon if I have to, you know, go to the doctor and that kind of thing. The thing I want to emphasize is that Massachusetts probably has one of the best systems, probably top three or four, if not the best in the country because of it predating the Affordable Care Act and that sort of thing gave them a running start on it, essentially. And yet, despite that, it's bad. It's not a it's not a user friendly process and it's not great and there's no reason to do it this way. One point I wanted to make there that kind of ties in the discussion of Massachusetts healthcare and the point we noted before about how Democrats are averse to taking credit. So although the Massachusetts health and healthcare reform is limited, right? It's not as uh, not an ideal situation. It was definitely an advance of other states and places at the time. And Democrats continue to not t- the Democrats will call it Romney care. Yeah. Mitt Romney didn't like we have a Democratic supermajorities. Mitt Romney like vetoed parts of it. They overrode his vetoes, and the only, they the still only, like yeah. calling. You will still hear Democrats call a bill that was passed by an overwhelmingly Democratic legislature by the name of the Republican governor who ultimately signed it. Right. Uh, which yeah, that's that's a problem. And also the parts that they did not override the vetoes on were cost control measures where mm-hmm. he vetoed those and then the budget exploded. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. Well, anyway, Rachel, thank you so much for coming on to talk this week about uh, public health policy and uh, especially infectious disease uh, control policy. Thank you for having me, Bill. And Jonathan, thank you for being here in studio. Yeah, thanks for having me on. That's all the time we have this week. Tweet us your comments at AFD Radio or email AFDRadio at gmail.com. The show is available for download from arsenalfordemocracy.com on Wednesdays. You can also hear it on the air in Delaware from 91.3 FM WVUD, WVUD HD1, and WVUD HD2 Newark every Wednesday night at 6 p.m. Eastern. You can get additional commentary at arsenalfordemocracy.com daily, as well as links to articles discussed today. From my studio in Newton, Massachusetts, I'm Bill Humphrey, and I approve this message. Good night.